Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hi friends, I'm Grumpy. I had this whole beautiful intro planned for you and I was waxing lyrical about spring and about how beautiful nature is around me and about my upcoming birthday and I was talking about the lessons I've been learning about internal resistance versus hearing a no and how that's been playing out for me in my podcast and I was making jokes about my dog lying next to me fervently licking himself which I'm sure you might hear and I recorded that intro over and over again and it's just not ringing true and every time I delete it and I try and start over again and here is the fact of the matter. I feel grumpy and I feel insecure about this episode and I, I'm just going to record it anyway. <laughs> I in fact have recorded it already. I recorded an entire full 60 minutes yesterday. And then this morning, I just didn't feel aliveness there. Oh, shame, my poor dog. He's really bored. We're visiting my friend Johnny and recording from my friend Johnny's house because in my house, where I live on the farm, they're busy building on my neighbor's house and it's just hammering and grinding. So we came here and Johnny put blankets everywhere for us to absorb the sound because his kitchen where I'm sitting is a bit echoey. And my dog is just sitting here staring at me with deep woundedness in his eyes. It's coming up on his supper time and we're not at home and he's not allowed to bark and he wants to go for walks. What is happening? Mom, you're the most boring human ever. So you might hear him sighing in the background. You might hear me sighing in the background. I am really trying to figure out how to create from a place of aliveness whilst also acknowledging the fact that some days it's just not gonna flow. I feel like I have writer's block for podcasts, like I've planned this whole thing out, I've recorded this whole thing, and I just feel really insecure, like who on earth is going to want to listen to me talk about these things? All of a sudden it feels ridiculous. I have this whole story that I want to tell, and I feel like I don't know how to tell it, and I, it's been, it's, I have been beset by self-doubt for the, the past two weeks. Like The whole concept of my podcast feels ridiculous. Like These are things that I love talking about. I've been getting beautiful feedback from friends who send me voice notes and want to comment on specific things I said in my podcast that they want to engage with. And yet somehow, every episode, it's almost like it's a bit harder than the previous one because... How do I phrase this? It's like it brings me closer to myself, to the scared part of myself that says, don't show yourself because people 
are not going to like it. People are not going to relate. People are going to lose interest. It's all fine and well to make two or three episodes, but to continue means that you will have to be real and stay real. And I've just been asking myself, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to actually make myself vulnerable to this audience? Am I willing to let you know me? What if you don't like me? What if I let you know me? What if I show myself and you don't like me? What if you lose interest after a while? What if at first you thought this is a cute podcast and then after a while you get busy and do other things? What if after a while I manage to say something that offends you because this is after all the podcast where I want to discuss complicated and sometimes thorny issues? What if it's boring? That might be my biggest fear. What if it's boring? What if I get repetitive? What will happen if you start getting to know me and then lose interest? That would be devastating. And yet, that's where I need to go. That's exactly the point. And it's so interesting to really run into this huge self-doubt, this, this constant inner voice, this ego voice or this pain body voice, whatever you want to call it, telling me, stop, quit while you're ahead. Don't show yourself any further. Do not be this vulnerable. People are going to be bored. People are going to be offended. People are going to be annoyed. Because that's really where I am in life as well right now. And in fact, that's what this episode is about. And I didn't mean for my, for my opening spiel to be so on the nose. But the topic of this episode is shame. And what I, I'm hoping to discuss here is intimacy and shame and how the two go hand in hand and now I'm experiencing this with my podcast which is fascinating and annoying <laughs> let's regroup and try to remember what I was trying to say over the past few weeks I have encountered my own shame in a variety of ways I've run into my own deep fear of being seen and being weighed and found wanting. And it has been excruciating and at times quite wonderful. And I've found myself thinking over and over again that this is, this is the stuff of life. This is what intimacy is. Is when you show yourself to people, sometimes on purpose, sometimes inadvertently, unscripted, and stick around even as the hot shame washes over you and you feel deeply and utterly convinced that the person you're showing yourself to is going to turn away. So that's what I want to discuss with you today. But first of all, I would like to actually play you a voice message by my very good friend Wolfie, who actually really started this topic for me, started me thinking about intimacy. I was planning on talking about shame and then his voice message spoke about intimacy and suddenly I realized the, the link between the two, how the two are really inextricably connected and I'm still teasing it out, I'm still figuring out what's going on here but I thought let's start with his voice message and I think he offers such a beautiful and fresh perspective on quite a few things as a, a bisexual non-monogamous man but what's interesting is he was raised not only 
in Afrikaans culture, but also in purity culture. So the heritage of being Afrikaans is Calvinism, is the Dutch Reformed Church, is a sort of a staid, rigorous, disciplined approach to life. Work hard. From the sweat of your brow shall you reap the fruits of your labor. You know, it's very polarized between men and women. Even today, it has very traditional elements to it. What's interesting is that that Afrikaans culture in combination with purity culture is quite rare. It's, it's a subset of Afrikaans people who are also raised in purity culture because purity culture tr traditionally goes hand in hand with fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. And it was actually passed on to us, I think, from the United States, where I think it's more common. So this friend, Wolfie, was raised on the one hand, steeped in the Calvinist stiff upper lip heritage of Afrikaans culture, and on the other hand, this um, fundamentalist evangelical perspective with ideas such as intense sexual purity of doing missionary work, often doing outreaches, being enthusiastic about Christianity. And the two have overlap, but it's quite rare to find both. And it's quite rare to have been raised in both of these environments and then come out as both bisexual and non-monogamous. And so I think my friend offers some really interesting perspectives. And I'd like to play you his message at this point. Hi Sage. So something James mentioned in your previous ep episode around how men and women separate during social settings made me think of my own experience growing up in a conservative Christian Afrikaans home. <laughs> so I, of course, was part of purity culture, and purity culture teaches us that intimacy is very good and very holy, but that it only ever exists within a sexual married relationship. And, um, and that's kind of the natural good place for it to be. And so we should be very careful in building um, intimate relationships with women as men. Um, men should not build relationships with women because it might lead you into temptation. So I, being a bisexual man, of course, found this exceptionally difficult because men and women were both a source of temptation. And so, funny enough, um, I think male socialization is quite shallow compared to female socialization. So the result was that I was a supremely lonely individual growing up. Um, I actually only can think of three male friends I had until my early 20s. Um, and one of the three I was romantically involved with. So it is, uh, that of course caused me a lot of additional anxiety because uh, I don't want to have only female friends because that might code me as gay. And so that caused me so much fear. Uh, but on the other side of purity culture, I was also constantly afraid that I might be quote unquote, too intimate with my, my female friends, whatever that means. And not really knowing where that line was of intimacy meant that I was constantly afraid that I might be overstepping some bounds and absolutely too terrified to even come close to any boundary or line according to purity culture. But the result was that I didn't really have any close friends at all. Even, even the very few friends that I did have um, it was very shallow, the depth of our friendship. But that I, of course, only realized much later. So it was only really when I got married um, and was allowed to now, according to Christianity, um, experience this intimate relationship that I realized that 
here I have a relationship that is sexual and it's romantic, but it's not really intimate. <laughs> and I don't really, I thought that intimacy would kind of just naturally come uh, because that's what you're told, but um, that doesn't happen. And of course, and now I understand that when purity culture says that, you know, intimacy only exists in a romantic sexual relationship, it's utter bullshit. Um, there are many relationships that are sexual and not intimate and so many intimate relationships that are intimate but not sexual. Um, but it took me years and years to detangle that and actually open myself up to true intimacy with my partner and even many more years before I could allow myself to be intimate with people that are not my, um, my, my wife, my primary partner. And many of those relationships are beautiful relationships that are not at all sexual. Um, and some of them are sexual. Um, and some sexual relationships I've had are not at all intimate. And that's also beautiful. But most, most importantly, understanding that sexuality and intimacy have, um, are not necessarily causally related. That gave me so much power and so many tools to then more purposefully craft intimate relationships. Because if you think that sex is the only route to intimacy, it sets you up for quite a lot of misconceptions. Um, and it makes it very difficult for you to cultivate friendships um, uh, that are meaningful. But if you understand that it can be different, sexuality is just one way towards intimacy, then I think it empowers you so much more um, to build the relationships that you actually want, as opposed to the, the relationships that people tell you you should be having. Thank you so much, Wolfie, for that perspective. I thought it was really interesting on a, ma on a number of points. And one of them was this strange, just what you illustrated is really a situation where you can't win. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you come from a culture where friendships between men, and I think this is true of most, of most Christianity or religion-influenced cultures at this point, and true of most of the Western world, men are seen as slightly suspect if they have very intimate friendships with each other. But, on the other hand, if you have too many close female friends, you're viewed as being gay, which leads to a complete loss of intimacy in general. Now, on top of that, if you're bisexual and raised in purity culture and you have to avoid sexual sin and sexual temptation, that's another reason not to develop any kind of intimacy with either women or men. And as you said, that leads to being supremely lonely. What's also really interesting about what you said is the fact that not only do you become lonely because you're not allowed to be intimate with either men or women, but you also never really learn what intimacy is because intimacy is so conflated with sex, both in purity culture and in Western culture in general. I think we confuse the two. Definitely if somebody uses the sentence, I was intimate with him, most of the time that's a euphemism for I had sex with him. So we even use the words as synonyms sometimes. And so if you spend your teenage years avoiding sex or avoiding intimacy because you think that might lead to sex or conversely avoiding sex because that might lead to intimacy, you never even get close to learning what intimacy is. Then you get married, you start having sex, and then only do you realize for the first time, oh, this isn't what intimacy is. Now I'm in my 20s or however old I might be, now I have to start figuring out what intimacy is if it isn't sex. And I'm not always sure I know what the answer is to that. 
what is intimacy if it isn't sex? An answer that a few of my friends mentioned as well is perhaps intimacy is vulnerability. And I agree that that would be a large component of it. But there are many forms of vulnerability that don't necessarily mean intimacy. For instance, me speaking to you in this podcast, I'm being really vulnerable. I'm feeling really insecure. I'm meeting my own shame and my own imposter syndrome on the daily. And sure, that does create some intimacy, but it can also be called performativity. Bearing yourself naked on a stage, is that intimacy or is that part of the show? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have feeling safe and held and cherished. And some might call that intimacy. But I would argue that sometimes feeling safe, at least if the safety comes from external things, is the opposite of intimacy. Let me illustrate what I mean. I have recently started thinking back to most of the relationships that I've had, specifically my monogamous relationships. And I'm not saying that this is true of everybody. But for me, when I think back to these monogamous relationships, I realized that a large part of what drew me to those relationships is the fact that I felt safe there. There were structures, universally or almost universally accepted structures. There was a script. This is how things go. This is what the guy does. This is what the girl does. This is what you can expect of each other. We don't cheat on each other. We um, prioritize each other. We won't leave each other because we both need each other. And then it can almost become like a standoff in the sense that, sure, I become intimate with this person. They get to know me. They get to know my shit. They get to know my fears. They get to know my, my hang-ups. But they only get to know it on the agreement that they're not allowed to leave. And I also get to know their stuff, right? So it's almost like we're pointing a gun at each other's head. Is it a Mexican standoff? What's it called again? Because both of us have now shown ourselves and now neither of us can leave. And of course, that's not all that monogamy entails and I'm not speaking against all forms of monogamy, but I find that with me, to some extent, I was hiding in my relationships. I was choosing a person that I liked. But what was also happening was I was choosing a person that I thought wouldn't leave me because they preferred me over being alone. So when I look back at many of my relationships, I can see that I was with people that I truly loved and engaged with, and also that I felt safe there because I knew that they needed me. They needed my companionship. They needed my laughter in their life. They needed my specific set of personality elements. And I felt safe there because this person wouldn't leave me. And that to me is not the same as intimacy because if there is no potential for loss, I'm not sure that there is much of a potential for aliveness either. Instead, you're finding a place where you can cocoon yourself and that is sometimes valuable and wonderful and then you hide there. And the thing that happens is something like in that space of safety, the gremlins don't come out. For me at least, my biggest shame, my biggest fears have always come out when I wasn't sure about my situation, when I was unscripted, when I let something slip of myself that I didn't mean to let slip. 
And if the relationship is built on you can't leave me because you're more afraid of being alone than you are of staying with me, then there really is no space for that kind of aliveness that comes with being unscripted. Do you know what I mean? Is it making sense? However, I'm not advocating for exactly the opposite. I'm not saying that we should all fling ourselves into the most scary relationships that we could possibly imagine. Because that, I think, would simply be thrill-chasing and could be another sophisticated way of avoiding actually showing up. And I think actually showing up for me at this point is something like sticking around even though people know more about me than I would prefer for them to know. Sticking around even though that brings up shame and fear for me. Sticking around even though there are no guarantees. But in a safely held environment, sticking around for people who have shown themselves to be willing to go the extra mile with me. People who have shown themselves to also be vulnerable. I just feel like if there's too much safety, then vulnerability cannot exist, right? Because vulnerability entails a sense of scary openness. On the other hand, if there's too much danger, then vulnerability cannot exist either. There is no healing in a space where your nervous system is in, in a state of heightened arousal. There is no true showing of yourself in a space that you are not being met. And this is all very vague and theoretical, and I'm having a hard time really explaining what I mean. So I'd love it if you would, if any of you listening to this would send me messages and perhaps rephrase what I'm trying to say in a more clear way. So perhaps I should just jump in and explain what I mean from my own life. As you might know, I was on SSRIs for the whole of August, and I recently weaned myself off of them a few days ago, actually after consulting with my psychologist because they just really knocked me out. It was quite strange because a previous time these SSRIs really worked well for me a few years ago. But this time around it's like my body just refused. I was lethargic and exhausted. I couldn't sit up straight. I couldn't cook. I lived off microwave meals. I stopped exercising because it just felt like an insurmountable task. And my libido was absolutely gone. And by libido, I don't only mean my sex drive, I mean my life drive, you know, my, my life energy. So I weaned myself off them, finally, and it's been wonderful. I've really felt like myself again. I mean, I'm grumpy today, but in general, I've had so much more energy and just joy, and it hasn't felt like I've been disciplining, pushing through thick fog all the time, so it's been great. However, when I was still on the SSRIs, on the antidepressants, what I didn't realize, because I, I, I don't know, it just never crossed my mind, is that antidepressants and alcohol do not go together. <laughs> As a result of not realizing that, I got shit-faced last weekend. And I do mean shit-faced. I haven't been that drunk since my early varsity days, or perhaps once or twice in high school. I mean, I, I don't drink very often or I don't drink a lot very often because I hate the embarrassment that comes the day after. Now, I know everybody feels a little bit foolish the day after getting drunk and I'd be interested to hear if any of you listeners feel the same, but I don't feel a little bit foolish. I feel like I want to die. I am so deeply embarrassed, like hot waves of shame wash over me after every single time that I get drunk. 
And I mean, when I say get drunk, I mean get loud, get a bit show-offy, flirt with everyone, tell a few strangers my secrets. I don't mean wake up in hospital or on the side of the road. I mean sort of standard fair drunk. You know, the, the, the normal things that most people do. And yet the day after, I feel like I want to stop existing. I want to phone every single friend and apologize fervently. I have to spend days distracting myself by watching any movie I can imagine, just bad medical drama series, just to distract myself from the fact that I am so awash with shame. And as a result of that, I tend to not really get drunk anymore. It's just not worth it for me. But I forgot about SSRIs interacting with alcohol. And a few weeks ago, I went with my one friend to a dinner party and got quite drunk. And it was like it happened fast and I didn't know I was drunk until it was too late. And like I said, pretty standard fare. I spoke too much, probably spoke very loudly, was a bit stumbly, was a bit was a bit wobbly on my feet, probably slurred a bit, just I think took over the conversation, which I tend to do, was more. And that's the thing that happens when I get drunk is I become more of all the things that I tend to be already. I talk even more than usual. I flirt more than I usually do. I want attention. I demand attention. I just become a little bit boisterous. And there's a deep fear for me in being boisterous. It's like people are not allowed to know what a show-off, flirty, boisterous person I can be because they're going to see the edges of my soul flapping out, you know, poking out. Those things are going to come out of hiding and people are going to dislike it. And that, of course, I know where that comes from. I can trace it back all the way to my childhood and to my dad saying, Ugh, just stop being so clumsy and embarrassing or just be more quiet. You know, every time I'd, I'd get loud or giggly or laugh or be funny, my dad would say something like, Ugh, just eh. And his response would be one of, irritation and or disgust and somehow I internalized that I if I let loose if I relax if I show myself am irritating and or disgusting and just profoundly too much and so after this this dinner party that I was at I felt so embarrassed the next day that I was totally sure that the friend I'd gone with didn't want to be my friend anymore I was very sure that I'd embarrassed him that I had just, you know, taken over the conversation and that he would never want to invite me to anything ever again. So I just hid. I didn't message him. I didn't do anything because I was completely sure that this friendship was over. And this is a this is a close friend. We're good friends. We see, we see each other about once a week. And yet I was completely sure that one drunken evening had ruined our entire friendship. Now that he had really seen me, now that he really knew it would be over. And for about a week, we didn't speak. And I thought, well, you, you, it's definitely over. This friendship is done for. And then he sent me a message out of the blue saying, hey, do you want to grab drinks tonight? And I was completely taken aback. And I thought, well, you know, maybe he wants to talk about what happened. And then when we saw each other, I was like, do you want to talk about what happened? And he was like, what do you mean? And he had no idea what I was talking about. He thought the entire evening was a huge success. So that was the one thing. And so I was just feeling generally uncomfortably close to my own shame and my own fear and seeing how this was 
coming out for me. And then in my relationships, in my close friendships, I saw this come out again and again. And I spoke to my therapist about it. And she said, wow, you really have a lot of stuff with shame. And I didn't really realize it until that point. Oh, yes, that's a theme. It's shame. And then (laughs) I got drunk again. This time it was with the mage who I've told you about, my very close friend. He and I went to a blind wine tasting event and most of his neighbors were there as well. It was a whole like neighborly thing. And I was hungry for a good social. I just wanted to talk to people. I have this deep desire to bounce around and meet new people. And I've told you about this before. Bounce around and meet new people and feel a little bit in love with everyone. And that is at complete odds with my deep, deep fear of bouncing around, meeting new people and feeling a little bit in love with everyone. And in the process, being me and thus being embarrassing. So these two things are directly at odds. This deep need to connect in a wild and spontaneous and unscripted way and this extreme fear of connecting in a wild and unscripted and spontaneous way. And I think what happens because these two things are completely at odds is then they come out in unplanned ways. And I think perhaps subconsciously I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to embarrass myself. And in my relationship with the mage, which is an old friendship, but it's recently intensified and become much more much closer and I have felt in general deep deep fears coming up what's been interesting is that as I relax into this friendship as I show more of myself and I am I'm really relaxing into this and I'm showing up and we're having vulnerable discussions it's, it's really beautiful and I'm enjoying it so much and even as I am enjoying it This ego voice, this terrified voice, this internalized voice of my parents or of my own critic is becoming louder and louder and telling me to get the fuck out, to be less, be less needy, be less intense, don't cry, don't tell your secrets, don't show yourself, this is going to go really, really bad, stop. That's the voice, so it's this this intense whiplash experience, the more I relax, and I am relaxing more and more, the more I relax, the louder the ego voice. So it's this back and forth between complete aversion and the need to run away and hide and apologize for who I am, and this huge joy about the fact that I'm being myself and that I have been being myself with this person and that they still haven't left. But the longer they don't leave, the more a part of me thinks that the moment that they will leave is coming closer and closer. It must be around the corner. And that for me touches on intimacy. It's almost like my whole body is primed to run away. It's telling me leave, but I'm staying. I'm staying in this deep need to leave. And I'm staying because it makes sense to stay, right? I'm not saying we should put ourselves in dangerous situations, in situations where we're not met, where we're not seen, that we should force ourselves past the discomfort. That's not what it is for me. What it is is I'm staying because I can feel that this is where growth lies. Staying in spite of the knee-jerk urge to run off is where healing is going to happen for me. In any case, so that's the background. Now the mage and I go 
to the swine tasting. And I'm still on SSRIs, although I was already weaning myself off of them at that point. And I still haven't made the connection between alcohol and SSRIs. And I taste wine. And I'm having the best time. I feel happy. I feel at ease. I'm with I'm there with one of my favorite people. I like all of his neighbors. I just feel like meeting new people. And in comes this really beautiful woman with her boyfriend, I must add. And I recognized her. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of briefly met her before and we um, started talking. And the drunker I got, the more beautiful she became. <laughs> I'm a late bloomer bisexual. What I did in high school was every time I would get drunk, I would want to kiss all the boys. And now what's happening in my early 30s is that every time I get drunk, I want to kiss all the girls. So I flirted with this girl. I gushed over her. The later the evening became, the more beautiful she became, the more compliments I showered her with, the more I, I think I, don't, I didn't kiss her, but I definitely sort of wanted to and made that quite clear. And all of this was in front of her long-term life partner. And I mean, as far as I can remember, she, she enjoyed it. I don't think I was ever creepy, although I might have been a bit dodgy. But I definitely gushed over her enough to make me have deep cringes of embarrassment the next day. In any case, at some point I went outside. There's a fruit orchard around the venue where the wine tasting was being held. And I realized, oh, my head is spinning. I can't stand up straight. I don't know how this happened. I can't think logically. And I just collapsed underneath the tree and fell asleep. Now that does not happen to me. Like, it's the strangest experience. And a, a half an hour later, the mage came looking for me, found me, called up beneath the tree, apparently. And this he told me because I can't remember it. I got blackout drunk. Apparently he tried to convince me to go back inside. I refused. I was quite petulant, quite grumpy. I don't know what I said, but... I think I made some really dramatic declarations of love. And he eventually carried me back to his house and looked after me. And I woke up the next morning with a big bruise on my bum and deep flaming embarrassment, as you might imagine. Now, I think I was drunk enough for anybody to be embarrassed. But the thing is that I didn't only feel embarrassment, I felt... I felt ashamed to be alive. I sat there in the major's house and he sat there looking at me, witnessing my experience and holding space for me as I wept and wept and wept and kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he would say like, what are you sorry for? He was quite amused by me. He thought I was somewhere between hilarious and adorable the night before. But I was like, I'm, I'm sorry the only thing I can come up with is it feels like I want to say I'm sorry for existing. It feels like how dare I inflict this drunk version of myself on him. How can I expect him to put up with me? And that's the story. That's my story that I have is if I let go of control, I can't expect my friends to put up with that. And the irony is that if my friends are sloppy or silly or loud or drunk, for me, it's not a matter of putting up with it. I love them for it. I enjoy them for it. But it's as if I can't accept that they might do the same for me. Somewhere I internalize this view that I am too large. I need to keep that shit locked down. 
and and so for me in this moment intimacy is looking my friends in the eye the mage and my other friend that I also went to a party with and my friends in general those who know me very often in spite of myself because even though I try to keep a strong hold on myself who I am sneaks out and I think if I were if I'm completely honest I think all of my friends know me better than I would like to be known and I'm really grateful for that I'm really grateful I think that's what friendship is right it's practicing being known and so I think for me intimacy is feeling awash with shame really confronting my own fear of of being bad being wrong being embarrassing being too much and looking someone in the eye somebody who loves me somebody who cares about me and saying I feel I don't deserve to be here I'm scared you're going to leave and my whole body is telling me that I should leave before you do but I won't and you might leave that might indeed happen but I'm not going to run away because I'm scared that you might I'm going to enlarge my window of tolerance I think that's what it is it's enlarging your window of tolerance so for me these days encountering my shame and I have so much of it it really freaks me out is how I'm doing intimacy and I really don't enjoy it but then there are moments of absolute wonder like I, I keep returning to the morning I woke up at the major's house and I was sitting there weeping and he told me, but you were adorable. And just, I keep returning to that moment and thinking, could it be, you know, could it be that this voice I have internalized this is wrong? And I think it's so profoundly healing being in situations where we think we're going to be found to be unworthy and then we are not. Being accepted when we think we won't be. Staying with that discomfort. I think that's where the healing is at. I've also been thinking about, about this heritage of shame. Because I don't think it's only my shame. I think this is ancestral shame that I'm living with. you know. And I have already mentioned that my dad, he was like this with me and with my siblings and with my mom. And with especially with us sisters and my mom. He very much had this thing of children should be seen and not heard. Women should be seen and not heard. And honestly, if you talk, you're just going to embarrass yourself. So definitely a large part of my shame about what I experience as being too large comes from my dad. But I don't think all of it does. I think some of it comes from the lineage of women in my life. Recently, I've been thinking about my grandmother and my mom's mom. She's 82 and she's been quite ill the past year. And that's been really hard to witness because my grandma has always been healthy. And by healthy, I mean up and about. And she works, like, she works so hard. I don't think I've ever seen somebody be that hardworking, making jam through the night, baking rusks, making meals for the entire family, just staying up. The best hostess. You know, she can't rest unless everybody has coffee unless everybody's comfortable washing the dishes immediately after any meal just she's always up always on her feet and recently that's changed and it's really made me pause and think about her and think about the heritage that she has given us and the beauty and also the grief in that heritage because when I think of my grandmother I think of an extremely wise and gentle woman a woman whose intuition is spot on a woman who knows how to love others 
who knows how to serve others, who is wise about what other people need, who has a very good intuition about what other people need, who has insight. She really, my grandma has tremendous insight. She also has an incessant need to apologize. If I think about my grandmother, I think of her apologizing for things. I remember shortly after we moved to South Africa and we were getting to know all of our cousins and our aunts and my grandparents lived on the same farm as one of my aunts and cousins and we would go visit them quite frequently and all my siblings would stay over at my aunt's house and have a big sleepover with all the cousins but I wanted to visit grandma. I liked going there because it was more quiet and restful and I didn't really like the whole noisiness of being with all the cousins. So my grandma would prepare my loft bed for me. I would always sleep in the loft and I felt like Heidi. And she would get the bedding ready and always put a little chocolate on the pillow and then prepare porridge for me in the morning and I would eat with her and my grandpa. And she'd make me tea and we would have a lovely little chat. And then in the morning after porridge, I would go back and rejoin my, my siblings and my cousins. And it was the most special thing for me. And... One specific time I had lost a tooth or I had just pulled a tooth and I remember taking the tooth with me to my grandparents' house because I know I knew that my grandma as the tooth fairy, or we called it the tooth mouse, the tanamos. My grandma as a tooth mouse would be more generous than my mom. So I took the tooth with me on purpose and I put it in a little box underneath my bed and true to form, my grandma swapped it for a tin rand all in the guise of the tooth mouse. I mean, I knew it was my grandmother, and I think my grandmother knew that I knew, but we were still playing these roles. So she wrote me a little letter in this fake, shaky handwriting that was meant to emulate the handwriting of a mouse, saying, Dear Sage, I apologize for only giving you 10 rand. I know that the tooth mouse you used to must probably give you much more money, but unfortunately, this is all I had. Thank you so much for your beautiful tooth. I'm going to use it to build my little piano. And so the letter carried on. It was such a sweet note. And it's still one of my favorite memories of my grandma. Just how much care she puts into things. Writing this note. Not only writing a note, but writing it in a shaky mouse handwriting. How special is that? And also, in that note, the apology. I'm sorry I didn't give you more money. And that was my grandma. That is my grandma. I would sleep over there and she would apologize for the bedding perhaps not being the right bedding. She would check in. She would apologize for the fact that they only had one type of porridge and ask if I was okay with brown sugar. And so it's always been. On the one hand, my grandma is this larger-than-life, wise and powerful woman. I really experienced my grandma as a powerful woman. And on the other hand, I feel that she's a woman who denies her own power because this is what her culture has taught her, that she needs to submit herself to a man, that she needs to bow to the greater authority of the church, of the state, and accept and submit. And so here we have this powerful woman who apologizes all the time. We have this wise woman who denies her own wisdom in favor of somebody else's. And this has been my inheritance. And I see the same thing with my mother. Less so, my mother, especially over the past few years, is truly a force of nature. But when I think back to my childhood specifically, I had two mothers. When my dad wasn't there, my mom was the most vibrant and funny woman you can imagine. 
she made up stories that she would tell us about. She would listen to the tapes, the cassette tapes that my grandparents had sent us from South Africa. This was still when we were in France. We would listen to the South African music and she would cry and sing along and we would all dance in the kitchen. And I remember how much fun we had. Specifically one time, I laughed so much at the, at the kitchen table that I fell off my chair. And she would go sledding with us in the snow, the only parent who actually went sledding with the kids. And she, she was just so much fun. And then there was the mom who became silent to the point of, of, of not saying a single word when my dad would attack her. And my dad would become verbally aggressive, sometimes physically so, and keep insulting her. And she would not respond. She would just grow more and more quiet in what I can now recognize as a freeze response as a deep shutting down. And the Bible told my mom that she must be submissive to her husband. I think it's Ephesians 5 or somewhere where it says, wives submit to your husbands. And she believed that she should stay with her husband. Even though I think that everything in my mother knew that she had a powerful intuition, a powerful intuitive knowledge of other people and understanding of other people a kind of a, a gentleness and a wisdom that is quite rare she sacrificed that in favor of my dad's perspective over and over again and that is a form of self-betrayal that is a form of self-betrayal that I think I see in my grandmother too and that I see in myself and I don't blame either myself or my mom or my grandma truly I don't blame anyone because this is an old, deep inheritance from our culture, from our religion, and tracing it back, you, you almost can't find its roots. You can go back as far as you like. You can go back to the story of Adam and Eve and you find that self-betrayal is at the heart of so many things. But in our family specifically, it's a very feminine shame. It's a very woman shame. Us women have been taught, have been indoctrinated to sublimate our own knowing in favor of others, in favor of authority figures, and in favor of men. And I see this. I see this shame that I have. It's, it's always there, you know, this shame voice. It's always commenting in my ear. But it's at its strongest when I interact with men. It's like I think that men can't possibly be expected to put up with me. Women might but men can't. Surely I should stop inflicting my dramatic, overly large, overly enthusiastic, overly talkative personality on men. Surely they will withdraw their love any moment now. And of course I say this is, a, in our family at least, a largely feminine problem, but it also isn't. I mean, it, a problem is never something that affects only one gender or only one race group or only one group of people because whatever affects them affects all of us so in our family and definitely in, in general how I've lived my life I realize that me feeling as if I can't expect men to put up with me me being taught that us women you know we need to tone down we need to hold in all of these vibrant emotions that also cuts us off from the men in our lives and in turn that cuts them off from us that creates further divisions and I think it it doesn't create a space where men are welcomed into into spaces that could be be healing for them as well that could create more engagement between men and women so I feel like 
this overemphasis on on specifically us women suppressing and oppressing ourselves on behalf of men is also not giving them the chance to know us and also know themselves and that's really sad <laughs> and i see this in my life how it's affected my relationships how it's how me holding back has also caused the people that i'm relating with to also hold back and to not be able to step into the fullness of their expression so i'm not at a point of knowing fully what to do about this i'm simply where i am and i'm sharing it with you so this is this is where i'm at this is what i'm practicing this is what i'm practicing with this podcast putting this podcast out whenever it does go out is going to be very hard for me because i'm feeling like this is a lot of rambling but i'm going to do it anyway because i'm widening my window of tolerance my beautiful and wise and artistic sister hannah she's also the one by the way who designed my podcast cover she offered me a definition of being in love which i found quite moving quite a few people have actually since the last episode sent me more definitions of being in love and i'd love to return to that again at some point and discuss it but i just want to pause at this definition right now she said to me that with every relationship that she's been in being in love has felt somewhat different because the dynamic with that specific person feels different. But in her current relationship to her, being in love feels like, and I quote, being turned on over and over again by somebody's willingness to bear their soul. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's it. You know, when other people, when people I know, when people I find beautiful, when people I cherish bear their soul to me, that turns me on, on a deep elemental level. I don't mean physically, although that can sometimes happen too. I mean emotionally, I am awed, I am moved, and I cherish that. If somebody bears their soul to me, and it's somebody that I am in a respectful and growing relationship or friendship with, of course, there is such a thing as appropriateness. We, I, again, I think bearing one's soul can become performative, if we do that in spaces where it isn't welcomed and met. But what I'm talking about now is in a space where it is welcomed and met, if somebody bears their soul, I am moved by it. I'm turned on by it. And so I want to meet that by bearing my soul as well. And that brings up shame for me. And that makes me feel really vulnerable. And perhaps because it brings up shame and because it makes me feel really vulnerable, I think that it is an incredibly powerful thing to do and an incredibly powerful space to be in. This space of fear, of shame and of breathtaking joy when you realize that who you are has been received with grace. Friends, I'm going to stop there. I hope that I made sense, that all my ramblings struck a note, struck a chord with you, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. So please, contact me, email me, send me a message on Instagram, tell me what your experience of intimacy has been, what your journey has been with shame. There's so much more to be said about shame, and I'm definitely going to come back to that topic. With much gratitude, I am signing off, and I hope you have a beautiful week.
friends, this is future me. Or maybe I should say this is like a more recent past me than the one you've just been listening to. I'm recording this piece almost a week after I did the previous one. And I just wanted to add a postscript basically and say, well, first of all, I wanted to give you an update and say that the rest of my week was similarly vulnerable. I spent the rest of the time since I last recorded going through a variety of small and large cringy moments. For instance, my dog vomited at a wedding venue, at an already decorated wedding venue where a friend of mine was getting married the next day. And um, and I also just had a variety of conversations where I felt what I was trying to say wouldn't quite land. And I think that it landed fine or it landed just as fine as usual, but I was feeling more vulnerable. I was feeling more exposed than usually. So I've definitely been living in this space of vulnerability ever since we last spoke and um, just just being with that. And then I wanted to say that I intend to make my next episode, perhaps even a few episodes about masturbation. I thought, let's go from a very wide topic on shame in general to a more specific shame-related topic, or at least shame-related for many of us. Definitely when I was a teenager, I felt a lot of shame about masturbation. And that is what I would like to discuss in the next episode. So I'm saying this now because I would love for all and any of you to send me messages, voice notes, anonymous notes, whatever you might like, telling me about your experiences for the next episode. And that could entail anything from an embarrassing moment you had to a funny experience you had to what you did and didn't know about your own anatomy or about other people's anatomy or all the weird ideas you had about masturbation what your parents told you masturbation was or wasn't, what beliefs you had internalized about it. And I'd like to discuss all of those things because that to me was, I suppose, a watershed experience, definitely as a teenager. And I think for many of us, it has been as fraught, as complicated as many of our first masturbation experiences were. I'd love to explore that a bit and also demystify the experiences we had as adolescents and just bring that to the light and if we can commiserate and laugh about it so if you have anything you'd like to share and talk about or questions you'd like to ask about this topic or any others please send me a message my email address my website and my instagram handle are in the notes below i am sending you all much love i hope this september is a beautiful one for you wherever you find yourself Thank you.